We've been in the middle of a triple net investing series. Everything that you need to learn about triple net leases, triple net investing, triple net everything. And so I figured it would be appropriate to bring in my good friend Ryan Stackhouse to talk about investing in triple net real estate. So Ryan and I actually met a few years ago. He was running a mortgage company here in East Nashville, which is it was right down the street from me at the time. And he had transitioned uh, probably a couple years before out of single family homes and into multifamily. And one day we were grabbing coffee and, and I told him, man, you need to get out of multifamily and start doing this triple net thing. It's, it's amazing. You basically collect mailbox money if you do it right. And he literally took that to heart and now has this $20 million plus portfolio on, you know, mostly triple net investments now, which is, which is pretty amazing. So Ryan, that was a very brief introduction uh, for the guests here, but tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So, you know, I, I like to say I'm a pretty simple guy. Um, I like being outdoors. Uh, grew up in a small town in Indiana and uh, my dad was a builder. So I appreciated real estate and grew up with it, whether I liked it or not. <laughs> and right. sort of learned, learned the construction trade, you know, from my dad and the, the business aspect of being an entrepreneur from him. And uh, that's what kind of led me down the path. I didn't know at the time that you know, real estate would be my career. Um, I fought it tooth and nail through most of my childhood and then got to my adult years and then it, it just kind of clicked. So, um, yeah, I, 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 w I would say, you know, what got me mostly into real estate was just seeing people that were more successful than me owning lot, lots of real estate, you know, seeing the freedom and seeing the, the lifestyle that it afforded um, them, you know, and, and I was able to um, start slowly, you know, real estate, I'll tell anyone this real estate is not a get rich quick scheme. There are people that do it fast and there are people that do it slow like me. Um, you know, it took me a good 15 years to get to where I'm at now. Um, at least 15 years, you know, if not a little bit more, but I had to learn hard lessons. So I had to skin my knees up a little bit and, you know, we're, we're here at a place where, yeah, we're buying mostly triple net lease now and, and, uh, mitigating risk by, by underwriting deals that um, that make a lot of sense now. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about that. Let's. Uh, I mean, there's so much to unpack. I mean, first, I want to start off in in you know your your beginner stage of investing when you started buying single family homes. I definitely want to talk about multifamily because almost everybody that listens to the channel or watches the channel is either trying to get into multifamily or is doing multifamily, and I think that that will help them relate to. The triple net side of things and then i want to dive into underwriting i mean what makes a good deal what are you looking for looks like uh goads has uh jumped into the to the live chat how's it going good to see you again appreciate you joining us live um so ryan starting out your career in real estate investing what what brought you to buying a single family home i mean obviously well, you honestly, had the background as you said but yeah, honestly, it was it was before you know before Bigger Pockets coined coined the term um, house hacking. You know, I bought my yeah. first house, and you know, I had buddies living with me or advertised on Craigslist back when Craigslist wasn't you know a creeper site. <laughs> it was actually you know pretty useful. It was actually um, useful, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I found you know great roommates that paid my mortgage. You know, so I had a couple of roommates that were doing that and. You know, I started in the mortgage business back in 2002 and bought bought a house that same year. You know, that's back when Countrywide Home Loans, 
you could get a fast and easy loan if you had a credit score above 680 and you know put five percent or three percent down and you know buy a home with stated income because uh, your credit score was high so that's what that's i did wild. And, yeah i mean it the first year in the mortgage business and they trusted me with the mortgage now it obviously worked out and it, it's it's fine but i would not say we need to repeat that part of history <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, but yeah, that first house, I mean, I lived in it for four or five years and then turned it into a full-time rental. Um, but those roommates living with me were the catalyst that, that taught me, okay, you know, running a rental is not that hard. There's as long as uh, a, a wise man once told me, as long as you've got, you know, two to $5,000 set aside, there's no emergency owning a single family home that you can't deal with, you know? You've got you've got furnace warranties. You've got you can finance a furnace. You can finance a water heater. You can get a roof fixed with insurance, or you know, or you finance a roof. So there's there's a way you can deal with these things if emergencies come up. It's just not panicking and selling at the wrong time. It's not panicking and selling just because you want the cash in your account. For me, it's never been a, about cash in the account. It's about the monthly cash that comes in. It's not about having a bunch of money sitting in my account or a bunch of money in stocks or whatever. It's about every month having cash flow coming in that supports a lifestyle that, you know, gives me freedom and gives me the ability to live the life that we want to live. That's what it that's what it's all about for me. Yeah, I mean that's the biggest one of the biggest reasons that people become real estate investors over any other asset class, right? Is is you get those monthly dividends, basically those mm -hmm. monthly payouts that you know, can help you buy other properties. They can help you buy a car. They can, and there's any number of things. I mean, one, one of my tricks is, you know, uh, that I tell, tell newer investors is like, yeah, it's cool to buy a Ferrari. It's even cooler to go buy a, a building that pays for the Ferrari. Like that, I mean, that's, that's the way to do it. Amen. Yeah. I, I will preach that till the day I die. It's like, don't, don't go and buy a Ferrari or a Lambo until an asset pays for that Lambo or right. Ferrari. Don't go buy a jet unless your asset pays for a jet. You know, uh, we just bought a house. We just bought our first second home. Like, you know, everybody out there that's thinking, oh, you know, having 21 million in assets allows you all these luxuries. Well, I, I didn't I didn't we didn't splurge until this year at 41 right. years old to buy a second home. And the only reason we did that is because that second home has a downstairs unit that will pay the mortgage on that property. That's how cheap I am. <laughs> and, and I used I used our first lien HELOC on our primary house here in Nashville for the down payment. You know, I throw big chunks of money at our first lien HELOC to pay down the mortgage. And then I use that as a checking account to go buy other assets, you know? Yeah, that's the that's the curse of being a real estate investor, right? Like I still haven't bought my own personal house because I have the opportunity to look at all of these other investment opportunities. I'm like, well, I'm gonna if I'm gonna put my money in here, how's it gonna make me money? Right. And so it's the same thing with a second home. It's like, how am I going to make money off this? It looks like Kim's jumping in the live chat. Hey, Kim, good to see you again. For everybody that's joining us, feel free to drop questions in the live chat as we're going. I'll be sure to uh, make sure Ryan answers those uh, throughout the process. Uh, but yeah, man, I mean, that's 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 what it's all about. I, I think uh, you can I mean, the wealthiest real estate investors that I know are not the flashiest. I mean, yeah, they they can buy nice cars and they have private jets and stuff like that, but they waited until way past the point of when your your average person would buy that stuff because they wanted to do exactly what you're talking about, have an asset pay for it. Uh, I think that's the right yeah. way to do it. 
Yeah, I, I, have you ever read the book uh, "The Millionaire Next Door"? I don't. I don't think I have actually. It's a great book. That that was a good lesson for me. You know, most I I, I think it's like, you know, seventy or eighty percent of millionaires out there drive a Honda or a Toyota, and they're usually about ten years old. You know. Really. Uh, yeah, we we own a 2006 Subaru Outback wagon and a oh yeah, there you go, Ram 3500 diesel dually. So I'm not flashy. You will not find me being flashy with a vehicle or you know my electric pedal assist bike. You know that I ride around town. That's a joke amongst yeah. a lot of my friends. I'll be riding my electric bike to a coffee appointment. They're like, dude, really? <laughs> really? What are you doing? Oh yeah. It's, yeah. It, it's, it's funny how, how becoming a good real estate investor makes you so cheap. Like uh -huh. I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, I'm wearing a pair of $35 boots off of Amazon. Like I, I like yeah. they're great. They're super comfortable. I put a new liner in them, which was like five bucks, but I can't justify going and spending $200 on shoes. And it's not like $200 is a lot of money. It's just, I, I don't want to spend it. If I don't have to spend it, yep. I'm not going to. Yep. I, everything I have on it pretty much is from Target. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this 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 flannel is from high school. Like, it's still in good shape. Right. I mean, nice. if it starts getting I'm not going nice. to wear like raggy, you know, clothing. I don't wear nice no. clothing. But, you know, it's 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 kind of that that mentality seeps through every aspect of the deal. It's it's if you're always conscientiously trying to save money, then you're going to do really well in real estate. I mean, that's that's the the name of the game. So Ryan, uh, obviously you're not flashy with cars. Tell everybody what you, you typically spend uh, at least a little bit of money on doing the majority of the time with your family. So, yeah. So what we love to do and, and our biggest passion is travel, you know, and, and lately it's become uh, travel with a purpose, you know, uh, mixing in travel with nonprofit, um, that, that sort of thing. Um, but I would, I would say over the, you know, the last 10 years of my life, it's been, you know, the majority of our expenses are spent on travel with a close second being, uh, bikes, bicycles, road bikes, mountain bikes, and then a close third behind that musical instruments. Those are, those are probably the biggest, there you go. I, yeah. I mean, number one is my family, my kids, but those are kind of the, the, the outside things that, that we like to do. So. Well, and I love that for your kids. Like, it's one thing to grow up with a dad that owns a Ferrari, but it's a, a completely different thing. Like, I mean, think about how much more learn, learned they will be having grown up traveling the world with their family. Yeah. And, and my mission this year, I used to be fluent in Spanish back when I got out of college, and um, I'd lost it over the last decade plus. And so this year is the year. That I'm getting fluent again, and I downloaded Babbel, and nice. I'm, I'm going to hire a tutor so I can get fluent in Spanish again. So my goal is to teach my kids Spanish. You know, I want them speaking at least two languages, and then they're going to grow up learning how to invest in real estate, how to run the businesses that we have. We got 13 LLCs now, so they're going to have to learn. They're they're going to inherit that. They're going to learn how to run it. Um, and then along with that, they're going to learn how to play mandolin and guitar, whether they want to or not. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's awesome. I, man, I wish no. I had learned that when I was a little kid. I mean, I grew up in a family like my grandfather was in construction. So, you know, of course, I was I was working on job sites. Uh, my my mom's husband at the time was he was in commercial real estate. But I never I never learned anything about it. It looks like uh, Teddy Pins just jumped into the to the hey, live Ted. chat. Teddy, what's, what's going on, man? Good to, good to have you joining us. Um, 
Yeah, I, I was never really exposed to it. And now, you know, now that I'm doing this YouTube channel, we've got the podcast, the blog, I've, Instagram is obviously a big one. I've got seven, 16, 17, 18 year old kids reaching out to me asking how they can get involved in commercial real estate. And I'm just thinking to myself, man, if I got involved in commercial real estate at your age, where I would be now, I think that it's so cool that people are thinking about that. Yeah, man, I, I think that about you at your age. But yeah, 18, <laughs> 18 I'm like, it, it floors me, man. I would love, you know, that's something I'm passionate about. I'm really passionate about helping people get to where they want to be in life because I, I truly believe, you know, at, the, at this juncture in my life, you know, my, my calling at this point is to help people because I've gotten financially and time free. So now it's my job so to speak from the big man upstairs to help people and so that's what i'm doing you know i'm trying I'm, I'm mentoring i'm coaching i'm i'm doing some consulting i'm doing this nonprofit work um you know raising kids of course too my wife you know she's homeschooling i'm sure she gets all the credit but um you know just being you can imagine going from working a demanding mortgage job where you work 67 hours 70 hours a week and then all of a sudden you're home 24 hours a day there's a big adjustment there. <laughs> yeah, you got to find your purpose, find your mission. You got to find your purpose, and you also you also got to really like each other too, as as yeah. a as a wedding couple. I get these people that come up to me and they're like, "I could never do that." And I'm like, well, "Why'd you get married? Like, if you can't be around your spouse all the time, it's like, true. That's that's a that's a that's <laughs> that's kind of a problem. So maybe you need to. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a problem there. Retire. <laughs> yeah. yeah. One day you're going to retire, and you're going to have to be around each other regardless. So you know, there's there's that. <laughs> that's so funny. Goes is jumping in saying you want to help him. I mean, Ryan does do some mentoring, right? I do. I do. Yep. You want to talk about that a little bit before we dive into multifamily? Yeah, and I, I, I'm not a big sales guy on that stuff. I, I do it mainly because the revenue goes towards nonprofit. But we've got a beginner class that we teach how to do the Burr strategy, um, buy, rehab, refinance, repeat. Um, I think there's rent in there too that I mm -hmm. forgot. But yeah. um, how do how do you use <laughs> how do you use hard money and private money to go buy real estate? How do you use your own money to buy value add real estate? Create um, you know, bundles of equity in properties and then eventually sell those to buy commercial. It leads into a higher level class that I teach as well, which is how to go out and buy commercial. And I, I use an analogy, you know, real estate is like when you're buying residential real estate or you're buying apartments and we can touch on this later too, but I think of it like high growth stocks. You know, if I'm going out and buying residential stuff or buying small multifamily or even up to 50 units and it's value add, that's like a high growth stock that I can buy and I can turn it around and, and force value, right? Force, force appreciation. And then when I go to sell, I 1031 exchange into a triple net lease that's got a really good credit tenant, great lease structures, great real estate, great dirt that it's on in a great location with that dirt. And that's yep. the annuity. That's the annuity piece. That's the retirement piece. So that's mailbox money, you know, and you were telling me this, shoot, two, three, four years ago. And I, I was just thick headed at the time because I was all in. I was all bought into multifamily real estate. And I was like, no, dude, I'm, I'm doing this. I'm doing the multifamily thing. And I never saw the consistent returns that I see now with, with triple net lease. Now I can predict every single month. ACH comes into my account. I know exactly what the mortgage payment is. I know exactly what the taxes, the insurance are that I set aside. The maintenance is minimal. You know, I set aside for maintenance for the roof and for the parking lot. That's it. The rest is revenue. 
So. Yeah. I mean, I know, I know you syndicate some of these deals. You've, you've brought partners in on some of these deals. I mean, one, just as a deal sponsor, as somebody that is actually putting the deal together and dealing with it on a weekly, monthly basis, it's got to give you some peace of mind that you don't have to worry about that stuff constantly. Yeah, I mean, comparative to multifamily as well, and I'm, I'm not going to poo-poo multifamily. It's got me to where I am, you know, yeah. so I, I owe some I owe some gratitude to the multifamily world and the brokers out there that have helped me, you know, get, including yourself, get me to where I am now. Um, so I won't knock it. I'm not, I'm never going to knock residential because we still own residential. I, I, I have a multi-pronged strategy. I love to keep residential around because when I, if I need quick money for a deal, I can sell a residential property to raise a hundred grand you know, right. to put into another deal. So I like to keep residential around uh, along with cash and the line of credit and all that, uh, all that other stuff. But um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I will never, I will never knock on that stuff. I'll never knock on the, the residential and the multifamily. Yeah, I love your approach because it's so well balanced. I mean, you've got residential, multifamily, office, industrial, you've got multi-tenant, you've got single tenant, you've got stuff in Tennessee, you've got stuff in Texas. Uh, I mean, you're all over the place. So it, when it comes to diversifying a portfolio, you know, you hear that all the time from investment advisors, like you got to diversify your portfolio. And I always get that because, you know, they're calling me, you know, from Northwestern Mutual or whatever, wherever. And I'm like, well, all I do is invest in real estate. And they're like, well, you got to diversify your portfolio. I'm like, okay, well, I can buy office, retail, industrial, multifamily, hospitality, single tenants, multi-tenant. I mean, the, the list goes on and on. I, yep. It's uh, That's what I love about, especially uh, the, these triple net deals. Um, but we'll, we'll dive into that here more in a minute. So tell me, tell me about multifamily. When did you decide that single family or, or what made you go from single family to multifamily? Yeah, so um, it, it was about four and a half years ago. I attended a Brad Sumrock seminar, which is kind of a multifamily teacher guru guy. Um, you know, I went down to Dallas and he takes people out on buses and shows them apartments um, as part of the class. And I knew, I, I knew that in order to scale, I needed to do something differently. I knew that you know, having a portfolio of three, 400 single family properties or even duplexes or quads was not going to get me to where I wanted to go unless I had those paid off. So, and it's tough to get to. And, yeah. I mean, it's really tough without a whole employer employee sort of team, you know, you, you, you really, if you're going to own 300 properties, you need about 10, 15 employees to do it. You know, it, it would be very difficult to do on your own even with a management team. I mean, to control your costs, to control your margins, you really need to have your own team, your own management company too. So I knew that that's not the avenue that I wanted to go down. Um, there's management of like what you do, management of triple net lease, and then there's management of tenants and toilets. And that's not the direction I wanted to go. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate the people that do it, but it's not for me. It is just not the pill that I want to swallow. Mm. So. I knew that there was an avenue that would get me further down the road. And I, I first saw apartments as that avenue. I was like, okay, economy of scale, I can buy more units. We can manage them more efficiently if they're under, you know, less roofs than the multitude of roofs. You know, the economy of scale comes into play with regard to, you know, if you got 
you know, three roofs with 50 units underneath them, you got three roofs to worry about instead of 50 different roofs, you know, and you've got, you know, the management becomes easier because you've got one site as opposed to 50 different sites and your taxes become cheaper because you don't have 50 different property taxes, you know, just, just one for that 50 units. So I saw that as the avenue to, to become more financially independent. And I knew that the equity that I had in these single family properties would, if I used, you know, math, um, you know, correctly, I could get an eight to 10 cap on the returns with the equity that I had in these single family properties, sell them, put the 1031 exchange into play, go buy an apartment. And if I got an eight to 10% return, I could become pretty close to financially free a lot quicker than doing this single family route where I was making a hundred, 150, 200 bucks a door, you know? So can you, can you walk us through an example of you're doing that? Cause we've mentioned that a couple of times now, but even, even if it's just fake numbers, just so that anybody listening, if they've never seen that strategy before can understand how that actually works. Uh, you, you mean the burr strategy or what? Yeah. What well, strategy? so you, so you're saying that like you do the burr strategy and then you either sell that or you refinance it and use those funds to buy something bigger with lower, lower cap rate technically, but T- talk about how that actually ends up benefiting you. Yeah, so I'll I'll use I won't use apartments because I that it gets complicated with the the underwriting of those and frankly I prefer the triple net lease. But we'll go back to the apartments. It's a little bit easier um, to underwrite. <laughs> it, it is. It's a whole whole lot easier to underwrite. So let's say um, I'll, I'll just use a couple examples of some properties that we recently sold. So we bought a fourplex back in 2016 over here in Cleveland Park. Um, we bought it for 179. Um, we put about 80, 85,000 into it somewhere in there. Um, it, we just sold it for 525. So we maintained it during wow. that time. Um, we we upgraded. You know we we. Um, got quality tenants in there. When we first bought that property, we actually Airbnb'd it because back then there weren't all the regulations with um, Nashville uh, Metro. You know, we could Airbnb four units with one permit. So as you can imagine, a bunch of one bedrooms did really well on Airbnb and it was very profitable. Yeah, it was very profitable, but it took a lot of our time. So we looked at it and we're like, "Mm, okay, let's hire management for it. We hired management. We found that that was not the best avenue. Um, so we went to long-term tenants and we eventually upgraded all the units uh, in the interior and started getting 950 to 1,000 per unit. Um, so the cash flow was really good. Having bought it for 179, you know, we were cash flowing 14, 1600 a month. But we got to a point where that property, another property, single family property on Buchanan that we had rehabbed and rented out um, and then a, a, a new build that we had done four or five years ago that we rented out, we were sitting on all this equity. And the way I analyze the, the residential deals or even apartment deals, um, cause we're, you know, we're listing our apartments here soon, or we, we already have listed them actually, um, because the equity is not keeping up and pacing with the cash flow, you know? Um, so I do this regularly where I look at the equity and go, okay, is the return on the equity matching up with the cash flow? Is the cap rate still, you know, in the market? And if it's not, it's time to sell in 1031 exchange. So we were sitting on, you know, 525 minus, you know, 225. We were sitting on 300,000 in equity in that fourplex 
we were sitting on a, a hundred thousand in the Buchanan property and another hundred thousand in the the Pennock property over here in East Nashville. So with those three, I was like, man, after realtor fees and everything, we're walking away with four twenty-five or something like that. We could put that money to work in a bigger project, and you know the returns would be much greater because I was only cash flowing total between the three of those maybe two thousand bucks a month after all the bills were paid. So, so twenty-four a year on basically a little over four hundred thousand. That's like less than a five cap. Yep. Yeah, because they had appreciated so much. You know, we're right. sitting on all this equity. That or a 5% capital, return on equity is probably a better way of phrasing that. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it wasn't pacing. And, and, and I'm not saying that, you know, affordable housing is a big thing here in Nashville. So mm-hmm. rent to keep up with the equity is just not practical with regard to affordable housing. But the equity has gone through the roof. So I looked at that and I did the math on it you know, and ran like an eight cap on 425,000. And that's like, you know, 30, what is that? I, I need 32 grand a year. Here. Yeah. 32 yeah. grand a year. Yeah. So yeah, that's significant. That's a significant amount. I mean, that's a 50% increase of what you were netting already. Correct. Yeah. So, um, what, what we ended up doing is prior to actually listing those properties, I started looking on the market. I reached out to Hunter on your team and, uh, you know, threw it out there to him, threw it out there to another couple brokers and said, Hey, I think I'm going to sell these properties. I'd love to do a 1031 exchange. Send me what you got. Hunter found a property that fit the bill. I didn't have all the money for it. So I went to one of my partners, um, Jess Reed, who's a partner on our Chattanooga deal that you and I are partners on as well. So I went to Jess and, you know, Jess and I met this morning, actually, we, we talk all the time and we put lots of deals together, but I called him and I was like, dude, I got like 425,000 to spend on a, on a deal. And I think I found a deal. Do you have, you know, do you have the other half? And he's like, just so happens I do right now. I'm sitting on, I'm sitting on some cash. Hopefully he doesn't get mad that, that I say that, but I'm sure he won't. Um, he's part of this journey. So, you know, um, uh, but, um, yeah, so we, we found this deal that Hunter sent over, and here we are. We closed on it back in January, and cash flow for me personally is 4050 bucks a month. So I doubled my cash flow from those three properties wow. into this one. And this, this property, just to do a deal breakdown of, of what we bought, it's a triple net lease, um, one building, it's, so the, the tenant is Blue Sprague Pediatrics or Blue Sprague um, Autism Center. So Blue Sprague is all over the country. They've got these autism centers and they, um, it's very recession proof because um, I don't know, like I grew up, I grew up with families, uh, one family in particular where they had an autistic son and it takes a lot of time for, um, for the, one of the parents to be a part of that child's schooling, their everyday routines, their everyday everything, right? Um, depending on how high-functioning um, they are. So this school um, sort of takes that burden off the parents and allows them to you know, be a two-parent, two-parent working family. And um, so with that, um, the, one of the buildings is brand new construction. The other building on site is fully rehabbed as of a year ago. Um, fresh seven-year lease, three five-year renewals. Um, the only landlord responsibilities are the roof and the parking lot. The parking lot's brand new. 
the roof's brand new on one of the buildings and the other roof had been replaced like five years ago and it's got a 20 year warranty. So the, the landlord responsibility is very, very minimal. And, um, you know, seven year lease in place with three, five year renewals, the financials of the company are good. We got lending terms that were 25 year amortization at 4.15, I think it is. Wow. So, you know, so our cash flow is really good. Um, we were able to leverage our money um, well. Um, and obviously, you know, compared to the other assets that we have, it became a no brainer, you know, looking at down the barrel of 2000 bucks a month or 4000 bucks a month, you know, that's, I'd be of stupid not do to that. do it. Yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah. I, I, I'd be like, you know, I don't know. I'd be math challenged not to do that. So <laughs> I looked at it and I was like, you know, it ultimately it comes down to this. When we have more resources, we can do more for others. Right. So right. as I, as I'm a good steward of the resources we have, I'm able to do more for my family. I'm able to do more for other people in in less fortunate uh, aspects of, of life all over the country and all over the world, really. So, um, yeah, I've, I've learned that owning a portfolio, like we have to be good stewards of our portfolio as well as just owning it. Right. Well, that's a great way of looking at it. You know, we're very intentional across our portfolio and with all the properties that we manage or the ones that we're just leasing as to what kind of businesses that we're putting in. And I think that that's probably the the East Nashvilleian in me that's that's hardcore local support small business. You know, we're going to give the small guys a chance over the big guys whenever and wherever we can. But you know, it, like in in a, in a neighborhood like East Nashville, that makes a huge impact, right? I mean, there have yep. been a number of people that were very intentional about that for years, right? I mean, we just got our first Starbucks. I mean, East Nashville is huge, yeah. and it just yeah. got its first Starbucks. Um, which is, which is really telling, uh, you know, it's, I think part of it is some of the overlays that prevented that kind of stuff from happening, but the citizens had to vote that in and, uh, that's, that's what it got us. And so I think, you know, as real estate professionals, we do have a moral obligation, a duty to the community and the neighborhoods that we operate in to be good stewards of these assets and, and, and to do, you know, what we can for the community. Cause more so than any other business out there, we have an impact on everything around us, I think. Yeah, oh, for sure. You know, we, we can, we can um, legitimately make or break, um, you know, if we got a strip mall and we're putting in junky businesses, quote unquote, we can make or break uh, a demographic of an area, you know. And uh, yeah, there's a lot of, lot of weight on our shoulders, but you know, ultimately we're in this to, to get a return on our money. So we want the best credit quality tenants in there and we want, you know, uh, I, I know you share this sentiment. We want the best image uh, possible and we want right. to, you know, we want to be good upstanding citizens that, you know, contribute to a community. And I, the thing I love about commercial real estate too, is there's so many jobs created with commercial real estate. You know, you think about, like why the government gives so many tax breaks with real estate. Well, it's because there's so much revenue created from that piece of property. There's landscaping, there's roofers, there's plumbers, there's maintenance guys. There's the jobs that are created by the companies that are in the building. Sales um, tax. There's, yeah. There's the management. There's the, you know, 
all the things that come with it, there's so many revenue pieces. So, you know, when, when the financial planners and I love my financial planners, they're great guys. And we, we joke around, they, you know, they joke with me and they're like, yeah, yeah, you're, you're all bought into real estate, but you know, we've got our life insurance and all this other stuff. But you know, when, when some of the guys call me, cold call me from Northwestern mutual and I'm not knocking on those guys. I love the hustle. You know, I can respect the hustle, but when they call me and they're like, yeah, you know, you should, you should really think about diversifying, like bringing up your point. I'm like, nope. You tell me, you tell me another asset class where I can cost segregate and fully depreciate a building in eight to ten years, or or fully depreciate stocks, and where I can leverage eight hundred thousand to go buy a, you know, go buy a three point five million dollar property or three point five million in stock. You tell me how I can do that. Yeah. And I'm all, I'm all in, brother. I'm all in. Yeah. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm, look, I'm I'm investment agnostic. <laughs> I just happen yeah. to think commercial real estate is by far the best investment. We we can tell you talk about why all day. Yeah, a hundred percent. If there were another asset class that that even came close to the benefits of commercial real estate, as far as tax benefits, uh, long-term um, strategy, uh, cash flow, consistent cash flow, um, stability, if there were anything close to that, you know, you know, and I, I know Warren Buffett buys businesses and. He turns them around and he loves his businesses, but he also loves real estate too. And, yeah. you know, he, I think he owns some of the largest shares of mobile home parks in the, in the country. So, you know, he's no dummy with, with real estate and cash flow either. No, absolutely not. Uh, and Solo's uh, jumping in. Greetings and Solo. Thanks for stopping by. Um, so on the, let's, let's dive further into that. I want to, I want to talk about cost seg and all of that when we get into the underwriting, all the tax benefits and everything, because obviously that impacts how you're underwriting a deal, but going from multifamily to triple net, I mean, obviously this, this genius, bearded genius, uh, gave you, uh, some tips <laughs> on what you should be moving into out of multifamily, uh, may or may not have been myself. I don't know. I wasn't there. Uh, but what, what was the. That's right. I know when we first met a few years ago, you had no facial hair at all. I mean, you were, you were the clean shaven mortgage guy. Yeah. Yep. 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 That's awesome. I took a page from your book, many pages from your book. Yeah. That's hilarious. I love it. So, so jumping out of multifamily and into triple nets, what was your first investment and what made you pull the trigger on it? Yeah. So, you know, the first, the first triple net leases were actually with some partners and we syndicated, um, there were there were while I owned the and we we still own some apartments. They're just, you know, we've got one under contract right now and one listed for sale. So I'm 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 all I talked to a broker this morning that called me and he's like, "Are you buying any more multifamily?" And I said, "You find the right deals, I'll buy them." That's right. All day long, because you know, like high growth stocks, I will buy high growth stocks. You know, like I, I don't, but I'll I'll, I'll buy. <laughs> I don't, but I will. <laughs> I'll buy analogy high growth stocks, which is real estate, which is apartments and, you know, residential. If somebody sends me a, a house that's 40 cents on the dollar, you can bet your butt I'm going to I'm going to buy that deal. You know, uh, you know, yeah. I'm not going to I'm not going to look a gift horse in the mouth. So that's what I told him. I'm like, you find me apartments that are good deals. I'll buy them. But mm -hmm. I, I challenge you to go find a, a good deal that's that's as good as what I can find here. Yeah. Um, so. Oh, I'm sorry. What was the question again? I forgot because I got sidetracked. Yeah, no worries. So <laughs> it was it was finding your first deal and and what made you oh, invest yeah. in it, like your first triple net deal. 
Yep. So first deal that we did was um, we did a, a retail strip center in Mooresville, Indiana. So this was back in 28, 2018. 2018, 20, no, 2019, 2019. So we found a retail strip center up there that was returning 10 plus cap rate um, cash flow and had some vacancy too, two units vacant, um, seven unit, seven unit retail center. And the primary, um, primary tenant is a movie theater, which, you know, through COVID that, that was something. <laughs> Gosh, I can't um, imagine having to deal with that. Yeah, it, it's it's ultimately fine. The theater is getting a grant, and they're going to pay back all their rent. Oh, great! But it, we we did have to work with them, and we had to work with the bank and all that kind of stuff. But it, it ends up it's it's going to be fine. But that was our first triple net, and you know the the good part about that is the good part about buying multi tenant retail is that all the other tenants carry the mortgage, the taxes, and the insurance even when the movie theater couldn't pay. So we were able to still pay investor returns, our PREF return to the investors. We were able to pay our taxes, our insurance, and the mortgage on base cash flow. Now, we as GPs didn't take any sort of income from it during that whole time. Um, so hopefully that makes sense to everyone and we can break that down. But we as the general partners didn't take any cash flow. All of our, all of our, um, our limited partners, which are passive, all got their normal returns. Now we didn't see the 10 cap numbers that we had prior to COVID, but they still got preferred returns on their money, which was promised to them. And we still made mortgage payments up until the bank called us and said, Hey, um, you know, the movie theater told us that they're about three months away from bankruptcy. What if we give you a break and you give them a big break and we'll work with you for about six months on that. Um, to save them. And we said, sure, we're on board. Yeah. hundred percent. So, you know, the COVID was definitely a huge learning lesson for, I think everyone in commercial real estate, we learned, you know, really what assets are really recession proof, uh, by being tested more than they've ever been tested before. You know, um, I don't, I don't know any other singular event that tested asset classes like it, like COVID did. So it, it definitely taught me a lesson. Yeah. I mean, it was a good opportunity to, to either be a great landlord or be a horrible landlord. There was almost no in between. I mean, when it first mm -hmm. hit, we did everything that we could. Every time we knew about a new grant coming out, there was a new loan from the government, any, any opportunity that could help the tenants out. We were sending out emails, calling people, making sure that they were getting, you know, first in line to get that stuff. Because, you know, of course, and, and wherever we had to, we did, you know, some rent abatement. Um, you know, fortunately, because we were so on top of it with, uh, you know, the EIDL loans and everything like that, we didn't really have to, we didn't worry about it too much. Um, yep. The government ended up kind of covering it, which was, which was great. But the, the tenants that still needed that extra help, we had some fitness concepts. We had some, you know, restaurant retail concepts that, you know, they just got hit harder uh, so, of course, I mean, we helped them out and, you know, it helps create that tenant loyalty. You know, it's it's times like these that really test, you know, are you actually a partner for your tenants? Right. Because at the end of the day, you are you're as much mm -hmm. of a partner in your tenants businesses as the bank is in your building and you are married to each other and you all are codependent. 
right? And so it was a good opportunity to, to, to really cement that with your tenants. Yeah, and, and I would say too, you know, we, we, own, we own a hotel. Um, I did own shares in another hotel, but I sold off my shares uh, recently, which was, which was great given COVID. <laughs> yeah, I bet. Um, but the hotel that we have up in Indiana, it performed pretty well during, during COVID because it's more of like a weekly hotel. Um, it's more of a short-term stay hotel. So it operated more like an apartment and there were still contract workers that were um, that were essential workers that needed that hotel, which worked to our benefit. And we fill a niche up there in that, that's, that um, area of Indiana where we're cheaper than the Holiday Inn, but we're just as nice as the Holiday Inn. So we filled a, a, a really nice niche there. But yeah, I agree with you. I mean, we, we had to partner with you know, our managers. We had to partner with our tenants. Um, and, and to be honest with you, you know, um, I, I'm a very, a very feeling person. I'm a very um, empathetic person. So, you know, when these people are coming to me saying, Ryan, we've exhausted our retirement funds to keep this business afloat. And, you know, we've applied for all, all the government funds that, that we can. Sorry, my kids are yelling in the background. I apologize. That's okay. <laughs> uh, uh, that's, that's real life there. Um, yeah, right. But, um, you know, when, when they came to me and said, Ryan, we've exhausted our retirement funds to keep this business afloat, you know, I can't help but, but feel for them. You know, I can't help but work with them because if I didn't, man, what, what kind of man would I be, you know? What kind of person would I be to turn somebody down that literally has invested everything that they have into their business and something completely out of their control, you know, threw them a curveball so yeah, we had no option. It was it was you know figure it out, and make it work, and ultimately you know through through this stuff you know. I I don't like to use the words too big to fail because um, I I think that's a cocky way to go about it. But when you talk to the banks, they don't want these assets back. You know, COVID taught me that banks do not want to manage big commercial assets. They do not want them back in their portfolio. And right. We were never. That's not what they do. No, it's not what they do. It's not even remotely what they're interested in dealing with, especially small regional banks where they've got to deal with, you know, enough stuff going on already. Um, you know, we were never in a position where we were ever in danger of getting an asset back. But in talking with them, they made it very clear, guys, we're going to work with you in every capacity that you need us to because there is never a scenario where we, we want that building back. <laughs> yeah. So, well, that's so like, great. Glad. Glad we're on the same page there because, you know, we, we do not want to be in that position either. So, you know, I would say that the the planning that we did, um, we, we tend to underwrite pretty conservatively. So having reserves, having, you know, a pretty conservative underwrite where we knew that the cap rate was going to float that property, even with some vacancy, worked really in our favor um, during COVID, you know. Yeah, I mean, that makes a big difference. Uh, you, you know, you and I are on the, the exact same page when it comes to that. It's what we did with our, our opportunity in Chattanooga. I mean, we underwrote it so conservative. We underwrite everything so conservatively that, it, you know, if something like a pandemic just so does happen to hit, we at least have either reserves built up or we've got an additional amount of vacancy built in to where the deal still at least covers itself. 
right? Like in those in those crazy scenarios, you don't need to profit. You just need to make yeah. sure that you're not losing, you know, the property because you can't make mortgage payments. Let's see. Kim Sharp is jumping in with a question for you, Ryan. Um, she's saying, hey, Ryan, uh, have you gotten any of your triple net properties off market or did you work with brokers? Good question. Um, you know, for the most part, I wor I've worked with brokers. I, there's only there's only one deal I can think of. Let me think here. Yeah, there's only one deal I can think of where we didn't work with a broker. And primarily, I was working with um, Tyler and some brokers up in Indiana and some brokers down in Texas. Um, but even Hunter found our last Texas deal. So, yeah. you know, um, there's brokers all over the place that, you know, when, when, when you align on values and you align on mission and align on um, motivation and all those sorts of things, areas of the country means nothing to me. Um, but, um, yeah, I, man, I'm, I'm forgetting questions here. Today. <laughs> That's okay. No, she was off uh, asking about off market or, uh, deal working yeah. with brokers. Yep. So, um, yeah, the only deal that we found that was not from a broker, um, was actually through a network of, Again, Best Reed, one of, one of our real estate partners, um, he invests down in Muscle Shoals, Alabama and owns some property down there. And one of the guys down there that, that would rehab properties and then sell them um, in the retail market reached out to him. He had sold Jess a property previously and said, hey, we've got this, um, this warehouse storage space that we've built a, a big um, additional metal barn on and insulated it and set it up with an office and we've leased it out do you want to do you want to buy it and i'll do seller financing and you can do 10 percent down we were like yeah twist my arm <laughs> <laughs> yeah right and the terms were great the cash flow is great so you know we 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 could leverage pretty pretty well you know with 10 percent down and uh it ended up being a being a really good deal but otherwise yeah we we found we found all of our deals from brokers, you know. Uh, I would say brokers are your best friend and you really, if you're gonna get into the space, you really need to, uh, first of all, define your criteria really well. Um, I'm a big fan of notes on my phone. So I keep I keep a, a template uh, in my notes of my criteria for properties. That way, you know, if I'm ever networking or I'm ever talking to someone that that uh, says, hey, what kind of properties do you buy? I've got it right there. I can copy and paste it. I can email it out or text it out, and they've got it quickly and easily. So um, I, I keep that, that stuff handy, and um, I, I think it's important to yeah, – yeah, and, and, and Tyler, you can, you can testify to this. You know, when brokers list properties on CoStar or, or – or LoopNet or wherever it is that they're they're listing properties, and I know not everybody lists on those sites, but let's just use those for example. Um, when you find a property on there, you know the the big joke is LoopNet is where deals go to die, and um, <laughs> I, I I don't agree with that because I've found seller finance deals on there, I've found seller representative. You can find deals good on deals there. on there, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can. It's just a matter of of. You can find deals on Craigslist. I mean, right, exactly. Exactly. We found them. Yeah. Yep. It's how much work do you want to put in? Um, but but ultimately on LoopNet or CoStar, it's the deal behind the deal. When you get to know brokers, you get the deals behind the deals. It's not the deal that, that's out in front. 
it's the deal that comes along or the deal that's in their back pocket or, you know, whatever it may be. I mean, shoot, you know, we, Jess and I were kind of in a deal drought last year when I called you in November and I'd been traveling for five months and I was like, dude, I'm bored. I need, I need to do something. <laughs> and you were like, well, it just so happens I got a deal on my plate that I'm about to get under contract. And, and, uh, it was know, literally perfect timing. Yeah, it was perfect timing. We, we talked and I was like, well, let's put it together. Let's do it. You know, let's partner on it. So it, it worked out really well, but yeah, I, I wouldn't have had that opportunity had I not known you as a broker or Hunter or, you know, the numerous other brokers that have, that have brought us opportunities. And, you know, I think in this space, it's all about like, we have to be good to our word. If we're going to network with brokers in order for you guys to take us as investors seriously, we have to be very transparent, very honest, um, communicate exactly what's going on in the process, you know, with financing, with, you know, what's going on with our partners, with our money raise, with everything. Um, I think that's critical. If you keep your cards close to your chest, you're not building trust with your broker and they're right. not going to trust you to send their, their best deals to you. You know, um, I think the reason why I get good deals coming in my inbox is because we are closers, man. When we tell somebody we're going to close that deal, we're going to close that deal, you know? So you can't, that, I mean, that, that is number deal. one, that is number one to a broker is, are you going to yeah. close a deal? Cause I mean, think about it. Look, they brokers don't get paid unless a deal closes. It does not matter how much work they do before you put it under contract while it's under contract. If the deal doesn't close, brokers don't get paid. So yeah. having, having a buyer that closes is everything. Yep. I yeah, mean, that's, it, you know, it's the trust game. You know, if we, if we can't trust each other, you know, you're, you're not going to send me the good deals. You're going to send me the, the right. surface deals that are like, eh, I'll, I'll send it to them. And they're like lazy, more. like maybe let's see if he'll bite. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, it, all this is relational. You know, I, I think it, it's a dead horse that gets beaten, but it, it's who, you know, and it's the relationships you build. And, you know, if you go deep in the relationships and you're adding value to other people, you know, I love to add value. I love to get on calls like this. I love to help people learn. I love to just um, add tons of value because, you know, number one, I believe in, you know, what you put out in the universe comes back tenfold. But also, you know, when you add value to people's lives, they appreciate it. They appreciate what you're giving. And, you know, again, you get it in return. So. Yeah, I, I completely agree. That's why I love doing this too. I mean, one, it's it's fun, but two, it's it's you know, when I first got started in the business, there was nobody doing anything like this and it was impossible to learn about commercial real estate other than spending three to five years in it, right? Which is incredibly frustrating for a lot of people because then you just have to take this massive leap and, and do a career change midstream and, and that's that's tough for a lot of people to do. Whereas nowadays, you know, there's plenty of other content creators out there that are talking about commercial real estate, you know, like yourself. I mean, you come and talk at the real estate investors of Nashville. You've got your your uh, your mentoring and your courses. Like that stuff just didn't exist. I mean there was I think I think uh, uh, Massimo, the Massimo group did exist then, but that was about it. And and to me it, I think it was like three grand at the time. I was like, man, that's a lot of money. Uh, for you know one coaching call a month or whatever it ended up being I don't know I mean it's been seven years but uh, you know Kim my, my take on that you know being a broker I'm finding deals off market and this also kind of answers uh, Goad's next question which is what is the likelihood I could acquire an off-market triple net investment through my own marketing efforts so 
I'm going to kind of give a little color to both of these. Um, you know, the majority of the triple net deals that we do have a broker. Um, it's, it's not, I mean, usually they're more sophisticated investors is what I've found. Now, of course you can find that, you know, random shopping center down the street from you that, that will every now and then be triple net. Um, and that guy may be willing to sell, right. But it's, it's, it's far more rare. Uh, triple net investments seem to be similar to multifamily where if you've got a relationship with a broker, the, the floodgates will open. And there are any number of investments out there uh, that are triple net that, or even absolute net, which we could talk about too, that, uh, you know, a broker could get you into. And at the end of the day, I mean, just because it's listed in the, on the market um, as a triple net investment, that doesn't mean that it's not a great deal. It's the same thing with multifamily assets. I mean, those, the way that multifamily assets trade, they go to, they basically go to auction, right? I mean, it's, it's the highest and best every time. So it's, it's a similar process. Now, you know, of course, with, you know, your own um, off-market marketing um, efforts, I, I wholeheartedly believe that you can find investments that way. I mean, we actively do that here. We send out letters every quarter. I'm probably about to start doing that once a month um, because it helps. I mean, one, I can kind of either approach it from a brokerage or a property management or a, an investment perspective. So, I mean, it really makes sense. I could run it off across three different companies. Uh, but, you know, I mean, my chances of getting something for any of those three is actually really, it's really high, um, which is why we do it. But yeah, I mean, I, I think direct mail is probably going to be your best bet for something like that. That's what I've found with commercial real estate, because, you know, typically these properties are owned by an LLC that is probably a shell entity that was created to own that single asset. That's what I do with all my properties. Yep. Um, however, you can find a mailing address on the tax records. You won't be able to find a phone number. You probably won't be able to look up that LLC and see who manages it, but you can find a mailing address. And, you know, especially if you hand address the front, which is what we do on every single one of ours, they have like a 99% open rate. So, I mean, almost as high as if you texted the person. So if they're interested in, in what you have to offer, they will definitely do it. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that, Ryan? Have you ever done any off-market marketing like that? No, we haven't. Um, you know, it's just relationships where we've gotten that off-market deal because, you know, somebody bought, just bought properties, you know, of a different class or a different asset class, you know. Um, I, do, I, do I think that it's a bad idea? No, I don't. You know, I've got a partner, he does mailers, and he's shooting out industrial triple net lease mailers, you know, and... Um, you know, starting to see some results, but I wouldn't say it's like killing it yet. Um, I, I don't think it's a bad idea, but I, I think to your point, I think a lot, if, if I were to talk about myself, if somebody sent me a mailer, there's, there's probably very little chance that I'm going to deal directly with them when it comes to selling this asset. You know, the brokers that found me the deal, I'm extremely loyal to those people. I'm never going to go around that broker to sell this asset. You know, I, I'm never going to screw somebody to make a little bit more money because that cuts off, that cuts the bridge for the future deals that could come my way that can make me millions down the road. So, you know, just speaking from that perspective of, you know, to your point, they're pretty savvy people, you know, they're, they're not going to cut off the leg to spite the arm. Right. <clears throat> so, yeah. 
I think that's a good way of approaching it too. Um, and I mean, one thing is like, if you're the buyer, it doesn't cost you anything to have a broker representing you and finding you those deals anyway. So might as well put them to work, right? Like, Hey, go find me this and let, you know, you can go talk to 10 different brokers if you want. Usually, I mean, if, if somebody calls me and they're working with 10 different brokers, I won't, I probably won't look for anything cause I'm just not going to take it seriously. But you can go talk to multiple brokers and at least interview them and see who you think might be the best fit for you and then decide to work with them from there and let them go earn their commission. I mean, that's, that's the easiest right there. Um, so, Ryan, we, we kind of touched a little bit on underwriting and the perfect deal that I think to talk about for not only underwriting, but also like the beauty of triple net investing would be the deal that you did in Chattanooga what was this a little over a year ago? Uh, yeah. how many, how many times have you visited that property? Zero. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was, Zero. that was awesome. So I never went to the site. Ryan never went to the site. We had a local property manager, go take a look at it. And of course we read through all of the agreements, all the contracts, the lease did a title review, but we could do that remotely. So will you talk about that project a little bit and kind of how you underwrote that and I mean, what made it work for you? Yeah, sure. So, you know, I, I look at a site visit as an inspection. You know, we had to do an inspection anyway, so that person did the site visit for me. And to be honest with you, when we put it under contract, I was in Mexico for two, two and a half weeks for my 40th birthday. So That's ain't no awesome. way in hell I was flying back to Chattanooga yeah. from Mexico. <laughs> I was in, <laughs> in Zihuatanejo for two and a half weeks turning 40. So, you know. Too um, much tequila. <laughs> yeah, yeah it was a, that, that week was a blur turning 40. Um, <laughs> a lot of fun. But um, yeah, as far as the underwrite goes and as far as the risk analysis goes, I mean, you know, I again, I had sold some assets and I was doing a 1031 exchange. Um, notably, I had sold a 45 unit apartment complex that was really a pain in my rear and I didn't enjoy owning it. So I wanted to cash out on it. We made a little bit of money and got our money back out that we put into it um, and then sold some other residential stuff along with it. And I think I had about 490000 to play with with the 1031. And we found that deal. And I think, what was it, like 1.975 or something like that, close to 2 Yeah, million. that's actually probably what it was. It was just under 2. Yep. So uh, I think I put 25% down on it and then you know some closing costs and whatnot so i think i used that full 490 from the 1031 and and, and we negotiated it, it down the, i think that was the asking price right didn't we negotiate it down to like 1.8 or 1.85 or maybe yeah, it was 1.875 yeah maybe it was 1.875 yeah somewhere in there but you know essentially what it came out to be was um i think it's I'll have to run the math on it, but I, th I think it's about a nine cap, somewhere in that range, nine or nine and a half cap. Um, but yeah, after all the bills are paid, so I'll go into the underwriting first before before diving into the cash flow on it. Uh, yeah. So with the 45 unit apartment complex and my other properties, the 45 unit was turning out a return of about 2,800 a month three grand a month, somewhere, somewhere in there. I was making about 35, 36,000 a year. And then a couple other multifamilies, again, like those multi or like those residentials that I had here in Nashville, these were duplexes up in Madison that I built a ton of equity on. Um, the cash flow was okay, but you know, really making four or 500 bucks a month per duplex, you know? 
Um, so it was it was decent, but not but not great. And uh, total cash flow for all those was about let's call it you know thirty eight hundred a month roughly. Okay, so you know what I don't know what the return is on that forty. So about it. Is it seven eight percent? Yeah, somewhere in that range on on the equity um, seven eight percent equity return, which is I, it's not terrible. Um, but I think that was Jess just saying his wire went out. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, look at that. <laughs> I was included on it, too. I saw it pop up. Um, so, you know, it wasn't terrible. And given, like, if I were a California investor, I'd probably look at that and go, man, that's a great return. It's incredible. But we live here, and we know that there's better returns out there. And I'm constantly, you know, analyzing our equity to make sure that we're keeping up with uh, what we could get. So I ran the math on it. I started talking to you, and you had sent me – when I was in Mexico, I think we had put those other properties under contract, and we were getting closer to the finish line, and I'd reach out to you and said, hey, I'm going to have to do a 1031 here soon. Um, can you be on the lookout? And you were like, hey, I just emailed a deal that I think you're going to like. Can you check your inbox and just look it over? Yeah, that was part of our. Uh, so we have a newsletter called the Deal of the Week, where we under, yeah. we go out and we find these triple net investments and we fully underwrite them and then send it out to this this newsletter group. And yeah, you called like the week of, and I said, "Oh, check your inbox. I think I think there's one in there for you." Yeah, so that's exactly what happened. And I'm sitting, you know, staring out at the the Pacific Ocean, pulling up this deal, and I I looked at it and I started running the numbers, and I was like dude, this is a, this is a good deal. I like this. And it's AT&T, the tenants, AT&T, it doesn't get much better than tenant quality yeah. with AT&T telecommunications, you know? So, um, you know, I, I reached out to you and said, Hey, what do you think on this? What do you think we should offer? And, um, I'm interested. So let's, let's put it together and you're like, okay, let's do it. So you had me reach out to one of your financing guys. I talked to him and his rates were really great, but it ended up you know, he didn't want to take a chance on it. So I went with uh, my local bank, um, which I, I will, uh, there's lots of banking relationships out there. I'm never going to yeah. say that one is better than the other, but um, I think there's a lot of importance in building a relationship with one or two banks or, you know, two or three banks locally um, going deep with those banks because they will do things for you that other banks won't do when yep. you're in an opportunity uh, place when you're when you're in a place where you can buy a deal and it's going to make you a lot of money, um, a bank that trusts you and you built a relationship with is going to help walk alongside you with that. So I just want to throw that little disclaimer out there um, to do that. And I tell my students that all the time: I'm like, go to lunch, go to coffee with bankers, get to know them, build depository relationships, and then start getting loans from them and build that deep connection with that with that bank. It's one of the so, most important important relationships that you'll have in commercial real estate. I mean, think about it. They are your biggest investor, right? They may not be giving you that money for equity. They're giving it to you as debt. But they're your biggest investor. 100%. Yeah, and, and how you leverage, how much you can leverage, uh, it, they are your biggest investor for sure. You know, if you can get a 75% loan to value, whereas another bank's coming in at 65, you, you've got a you've got to put together 35% compared to 25 or, or, you know, local banks. Now, if I've got a deal in Tennessee, they'll do 20% down for me now, yeah. you know, and shoot, my local bank did my loan out in Colorado. It's a, it's a, it's a private note. 
um, that they did or, or a private loan that they keep on their portfolio. And they did a loan for me on Colorado. They're bending over backwards for me. That's awesome. You know? Yeah, they're, they're fantastic. So am I going to praise them? Of course. I'm going to refer everybody a no to them because they've, they've helped build a lot of wealth for me. Do, so, you, do you want to drop his name in the bank? Yes, Seth, Seth Butler over at Studio Bank. I, I love those guys. Studio Bank yeah. is hands hands down my favorite bank here locally. I'm, They're I mean, great. They're a great Nashville bank. And, and actually, since them, because of the experience with Seth, we've used him on other properties, too. I mean, yeah. that's he's, he's great. The, the whole team's yeah. great. He's fantastic. Yeah, I can. You know, one of the great things I really like about the local banks, and I know I'm getting sidetracked here, and I'll get back to the underwriting. That's thing. okay. We got plenty of time. Yeah, the deal. But, you know, one of the things I love about them is, you know, with my lifestyle traveling and being in multiple states and being in different countries, and, you know, I think we were we were talking, um, and I was in Honduras last week, and we were texting back and forth. You know, I can I – can, email my banker there um, the assistant for Seth her name's Frankie and I can email her and say hey I need to wire funds for this earnest money or hey I need to wire money for our for our deal down in Chattanooga to put in our account I, I literally emailed her yesterday morning and said hey can you take care of this ACH and she got right back to me and said yep I got it taken care of for you it's done you know there's times where I'm I'm in another country and you know, I'll, when I flew into Honduras, I literally sent her a text and I said, Hey, can you make sure my debit card works in Honduras so I can pull up money? And she was like, sure. Yeah, I got you. Got you covered. Or I need to wire money for earnest funds for this deal. Can you wire 10,000 out for this? Yep. Gotcha. Do you think I could do that with regions? <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not. You answer that. No, you I can't. Cause I've tried. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, so it, it's critical to work with those guys. But anyway, I, I got the financing through Seth on this deal um, for that. And it really great terms, 25-year amortization. I think I'm at 4.375. You know, it's fixed for five years. I can renew after that. Um, I put 25% down. Um, you know, it worked out really well. And, and, you know, for anyone out there that's like, well, why do you do 25-year amortization? I'm all about cash flow. I'm not, yeah. I'm not, I'm not about paying these assets off. Would it be great if I paid them off? Sure. But my, my goal is to never pay these properties off. My goal yeah, is because your return on equity is so low. I mean, just like we were talking about earlier, that's why I've never understood anybody that wants to own their real estate outright. You're looking at, you know, at least 80% or 75% of that equity is not making you any money that could be in a completely different deal. Correct. Yep. Or four. Hundred percent on board with that as well. You know, I'm all about cash on cash return. That's probably the biggest factor that I use when looking at deals. You know, what's the cash on cash return? How quickly can I make my money back? And how quickly can I churn this money? You know, the secret that that the the wealthy, I think, um, you know, ultimately in a roundabout way they teach, but the secret of wealth is the velocity of capital, the velocity of money. How quickly can you pull your money out of that deal to move to another deal to leverage as much as possible to make you cash flow? And then how quickly can you keep it moving? It's all right. about the velocity of money. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. So, okay, so you've gotten, um, you've got the deal under contract, you got your financing secured. What, what was the next yep. thing? 
Yeah, so we, we closed on those properties that we were selling. We had 45 days to locate the, the exchange property. So we had put it under contract. That was our exchange property. You know, and I would recommend for folks out there that are going to do a 1031, especially if you're selling multiple properties, um, you don't want to be in a position where you've got to get desperate in a 1031. So identify that IRS will fun. let you identify. No, it's not. Uh, the IRS will let you identify up to three properties that you can use as your target properties with your 1031 money. Um, now, I, I've never had to go to my backup option. I've, I call it lucky, call it fortunate. Um, we've sold a lot of properties and done quite a few 1031s, and I've always been able to close on the deal that we put under contract because our underwriting is so tight. It's so watertight. And I think part of I'm not going to take all the credit for that because, you know, I lean on you, um, Hunter. I lean on the bank. I lean on everyone around me. And then I underwrite my portion as well. But if everyone around me that's the expert says it's a good deal and, and I say it's a good deal, um, chances are it's a good deal, you know. So if it is, in fact, a good deal and the inspection, you know, turns up okay, then we move to closing. We, we go through and um, we've been fortunate in that all the 1031s have worked out well that way. So we got it. We got it under contract. We, you know, identified the 1031 exchange. We got all that lined up. We got the financing all lined up. We did our phase one environmental report. And if you guys don't know out there um, in listener land, if you don't know what a phase one is, it's an environmental report just to make sure that on a commercial property, there's no environmental hazards no oil tanks in the ground no gas tanks in the ground nothing explosive nothing dangerous no chemicals yeah yeah no chemicals nobody nobody was dumping stuff there so you got to do one of those sometimes you have to do a survey just depending on the bank what they require you always have to do an appraisal Uh, an appraisal is going to be a little bit more expensive on a commercial property than a residential so you're looking at anywhere from what do you see out there? 2000 to 5,000, somewhere in that range. Totally Just, depends on the size of the property. Uh, yep. but I would say two to 5,000 is probably pretty good. I mean, of course, once you're getting up into the hundred thousand square foot plot, I mean, it's, it's going to change, but yeah. Yeah. So, you know, on, on the inspection, you're probably looking at 1200 bucks, 1500 bucks on an inspection, your environmental, um, I think that was 2200 something like that appraisal I think on this was like 2400 maybe that maybe the environmental wasn't that much but th- that's kind of just an idea for folks out there what what your upfront costs are going to be and then you know your closing costs you've got your standard title stuff you know up there so um, yeah we did the inspections we you know the I think in our inspection most of the items that were quote unquote issues were the tenant responsibility anyway. You know, there was only like there's on the roof, there's like a pea gravel on the roof and there was a couple spots that were exposed. So we just kind of had them shift around the pea gravel, but it's not really, there's no standing water or any damage or anything like that. So I think, you know, after we did the inspection, it was like, you know, okay, let's move to closing. Let's get the appraisal done and move to closing. So ultimately when it, when it comes down to it, um, you know, we, I like the deal. I like the returns. Uh, we, we 1031 the money. We went to closing. And now um, the way the asset performs is um, after we – it's actually a better deal than what, what we initially thought, the cash flow. 
um, it actually came out to be a little bit better after all the bills are paid. After I pay everything, they what they do is they prorate their taxes and insurance and tack it onto the rent. So they don't ever have to write like a, a check once a year when I pay the taxes and insurance. They just include it with the rent. So um, no, no, they don't. No, they don't. Sorry, I'm confusing that with another one. Um, they do pay once a year. They pay the taxes and insurance. So the rent is just the base rent. But after I pay the taxes and insurance, um, and obviously I set aside reserves, but not including the reserves, um, the total amount that I get is about $6,074 a month, I think it is, after the bills are paid. So I set aside, you know, 800 bucks, 1000 bucks a month in reserves for the roof, you know, for one day if I have to do something with the roof. The reality is, um, and I'm not saying everybody live on the edge, but the reality is that roof has a warranty on it. And down the road, if there is an issue with it, the probability with the amount of equity that I have in that property of being able to get a line of credit or something else to pay for it is very high because we're paying it down with 25 year amortization and the properties in Chattanooga, which is appreciating like crazy. So the likelihood that I could go to my bank and say, Hey, can I get a hundred thousand dollar line of credit to fix the roof? They, they would say, yes, I, I know they would. Um, or I can use my other line of credit that I have as well. So I'm not saying do that, but, um, I set aside for reserves and do all that, but there's multiple ways you can think about your reserves as well. And there's creative ways that you can think about um, dealing with a roof or a parking lot or those sorts of things as well. So uh, ultimately, you know, after we closed, um, it is probably the easiest deal that I own. Um, all the triple net leads are, leases are AT&T. I've got my contacts over there now. Um, when I pay the taxes and insurance, I email this one lady, she reimburses me through ACH like a day or two later. And then the rent comes in on the first of the month through ACH into my account, like clockwork. It comes in on the first, it's there. I see it pop in, I pay the mortgage and what's left over is the cash flow. So, and, and to, as the cherry on top that we get to talk about on this deal, which is my favorite part of, about this deal. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Tyler, being the genius that he is, didn't tell me there was a free lot that came with it. Um, I didn't <laughs> pay attention to any sort of survey. But, you know, here we are. We own this property, what, you know, eight months or so. And about four or five months ago, we get we get a group um, that that's a neighboring business that reaches out to us and says, hey, we want to make you an offer on this separate parcel that's connected to your commercial property. And to which point Tyler and I go, Hey, we didn't even know we had a parcel. <laughs> yeah. Hey, there's free money falling out of the sky. <laughs> uh -huh. Yeah. So, so here we are. Um, we've now put together. Um, well, I had to go to my bank first and make sure that they would carve out that parcel uh, in the 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 uh, property description, and then I had to talk to AT and T to make sure that they would carve it out of their lease and their legal. Yeah, because they were using free. it as they're using it as a parking lot. Yeah. So ultimately, um, you know, when I when I reached out to both, they both said, that's totally fine. We'll do that. There's no change in the lease terms like the legal department just said, yeah, that's fine. We're not going to mess with the lease or anything. We'll just keep it in place. Um, you can sell it off. And it's it's outside the fence perimeter area anyway. So it doesn't really affect them or their business, really, you know. So um, 
so yeah, you know, here we are, we, we got a 75 grand offer and they're taking care of closing costs and basically 75 grand just dropped out of the sky. Thanks to, uh, Mr. Cobble here. Uh, <laughs> those returns, those returns are going to look so ridiculous when you update oh. your pro forma. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's, yeah, there, there's th this deal is, you know, I, I, if you could go find me like five more of those deals for the, the ensuing, you know, year or two, I, I you know, I would love uh, that. You'd, you'd be my favorite. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're actually, we're actually talking about restarting the deal of the week newsletter. So uh, maybe we will find some, I've actually got a research analyst on our team now that uh, that's what he's doing every week is going out and finding these deals and putting the underwriting together. We stopped that newsletter when the pandemic hit, because obviously yeah. for like three months, no, I mean, first of all, our open rates plummeted because nobody was yeah. reading them anymore. And so I was like, ah, oh, we'll put this on pause. And now obviously it's a great time to get back to doing that. So you're right. We need to, we need to yeah. get back to that. Hopefully I'll find some, uh, find some deals for you. Well, Hunter, yeah. Hunter's on the look. He's sending me deals every once in a while for, uh, he knows that we're going to be selling these apartments here soon. So we're going to be identifying for, for this next 1031 and, you know, we'll have a, we'll have a pretty decent amount to go, go shopping with. And, I've got some partners that have reached out to me too. And they're like, Hey, I'm sitting on a couple hundred thousand, four or 500,000 here and there, you know, and, and we're going to have a pretty substantial amount too. So that's, that's my favorite time. It's like, okay, let's go deal hunting. Let's go. Yeah. Let's go hunting. Let's go fishing, baby. Uh, yep. We've got another question for you here. What were some obstacles you overcame when raising capital for your first large commercial deal? That's a great question. Great question. Great question. Um, yeah, I think most of the obstacles that you're up against are in your own head. You know, I would say that, you know, the mental obstacles are the biggest ones, believing in ourselves that we can do it um, and believing that we're adding value to our investors. But for me, coming from a mortgage background, I was already so I already knew how to talk to investors, you know. So if you're already in this real estate game, that's a foot in the door that a lot of people don't have if they're in a different industry. You know, if you're already doing real estate, you've got an advantage, especially if you're sharing your story on social media or you've got family and friends that know what you do. You, you, you're you already influential to those people because they're seeing you as the expert doing this stuff already. Um, in addition to that, um, I started a meetup in my office and I, I started having these monthly meetups where people would come to the office and um, I became a, a speaker at those meetups. I would I would lead co-lead the meeting or um, I go and speak at the Ren, you know, events going on um, and, and things like that. I, I would encourage you if you're going to raise money and you're going to do deals like that, be it be an influence in your community. Go speak, go be the expert as many things as you can. If you can't find a meetup that fits the bill, start your own, um, you know, do do take action and become the expert in, you, in your arena. And then you start building these relationships with people that will approach you or through just talking with them, they'll tell you, um, hey, I'm sitting on this amount of money from this deal or I've got family with this or whatever, you know. Um, for me, it was mostly a lot of a lot of people that I'm friends with or um, acquaintances with that I've I've done loans for or just have gotten to know over the years are in industries where they've made good money and they've got money sitting on the sidelines, but they don't have the time to go find the deals. They don't have the time 
to be in this industry full time, underwriting deals and looking for deals and um, chasing that down. And, and not to mention knowing how to underwrite them and knowing how to put together the financing and having the relationships to put together the financing, having the trust with the banks so they will finance you if you have no experience doing this. So um, ultimately, you know, it, w- it was being active in the community, being an influencer, being out there as the expert and having people around me that eventually um, said, hey, Ryan, we've we've got these funds. And I, what I did is as I would meet with people um, or or talk with folks that reached out to me, um, I would, you know, I, I have an ongoing list of people that have shown interest in investing. And I just reach out. I do a every time we come up with a deal, I float it out to all those people. And every time we've been able to raise enough capital. I would also say this. It's good to have other people on your team that become um, the lane that you're not good at. You know, Um, I'm I'm decent at raising money, but I've got a partner who's really, really good at raising money as well. And and what I'm good at is finding deals, networking with brokers, putting together the financing for the deals with the banks, um, you know, getting creative with deals, that sort of thing. Um, I can raise money and I've got my investors um, and I've certainly been able to put together deals that way. But as we get into bigger deals, I'm having to partner with guys that that's their lane. Raising money is their lane because um, I we we have to join forces. Guys, this is a team sport. And if you're not thinking of this as a team sport, I encourage you to re re um, shift your focus and and think of it as a team sport, because, you know, I'm always going to use this analogy. Half the watermelon is better than the whole grape or the the whole of nothing. Um, sharing half the watermelon with somebody, um, you know, whereas you wouldn't have closed the deal, um, is a winner every time. You know, I think we all can agree on that. So when it comes to raising money, I I think all those aspects, but then also being very detailed with your slide decks as you're putting together slide decks for your deals and you're sending out information, be as detailed as possible and explain the deal in as simple terms as possible. You know, you need the layman to understand exactly what you're what you're putting together. And uh, there's so many complexities to this. You need to know your securities and exchange rules. And Tyler and I can direct you on um, attorneys that can help you. Fun with that. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's nobody wants to go to prison. So take that seriously. And, you know, w- we never want to encourage somebody to go out there and raise money without knowing, you know, yeah. securities and exchange rules. Uh, but ultimately it can be done. It's not as hard as people make it out to be, you know, get past your mental roadblocks. And, and also just remember that you're adding value to these people's lives as well. They're not just bringing money to your deal. You're adding value to their life because they wouldn't otherwise be able to get the returns that they're getting from you. Not to mention the tax benefits. You know, we include our investors as owner percentage um, members of the property. So they're getting to share in the depreciation and the, the write-offs with their K-1s, which um, give them explicit percentage ownership. So I don't I don't know any other investments out there that my investors can go out and get the kind of returns that they're getting from the assets that, that we're, we're sharing with them and giving them, and uh, we're all winning. Everybody in the deal is winning. It's a win-win on all fronts. So. Exactly. That, that's how we look at our, our capital raises. It's not so much like 
hey, the investors are giving us money and then we get to go do the deal. It's no, we're both really going to win from this because, you know, like you said, the investors wouldn't have otherwise had that opportunity. But investors make a ton of money or they can make a ton of money in these deals. And, you know, that was that's a great segue. You were talking about K-1s and write-offs. I mean, let's let's talk about the cost segregation, that accelerated depreciation that you're doing that most investors don't even include in their underwriting. Uh, so talk about how that, one, what it is, but two, how it can impact your returns on a project. Yeah, so a cost segregation um, study is essentially when you hire a cost segregation engineer to go into a property and um, look at every component of the property. The IRS defines an economic life for all components of a property, the roof, the water heater, the furnace, the flooring, um, everything. And a cost segregation engineer, their full-time job is to dissect the economic life of each component of a real estate property, you know, um, with commercial, it becomes so much more powerful because your revenue supports doing that cost uh, segregation study. But in in accordance with that, you know, your your cash flow, you're going to have a tax problem if you don't depreciate wisely. So, what it allows you to do is accelerate your depreciation because your water heater doesn't have a 39 year life to it. In your traditional uh, depreciation for commercial property is 39 years. So if you're if you're expecting to fully depreciate your property and get the most value out of depreciation on a commercial property, it ain't the traditional way. None of us, at least I'm not, planning to own a commercial property for 39 years because when that sucker's paid off, yeah, I'm going to sell it and leverage it again, you know. Or if I fully depreciate it, I'm going to sell it in 1031. It's time to move on. Property. Yeah, exactly. So. Um, what these guys do is give you a tool to accelerate depreciation so you can maximize your cash flow and maximize the amount of money that you keep by by using depreciation to offset your capital gains. And by accelerating that depreciation, you can fully depreciate a property in 8 to 10 years as opposed to 39. And then at that 8 to 10 year period, um, sometimes more, it just depends on the property, the specific property. But let's say you fully depreciate that property in eight to 10 years. Um, then you look at selling you 1031 exchange into something else and you keep your cash flow. That that's how guys, that's how the wealthy that own lots of real estate don't pay a lot of taxes. They employ these strategies to pay very little in capital gains. First of all, it's passive income, which is taxed at a lower rate anyway. And then when you've got cost segregation studies to accelerate depreciation, you've got tax strategies like that. You can quickly offset your your long-term capital gains by employing these strategies. So you're paying very little in taxes. Just to add a personal anecdote to the power of cost segregation studies, we had a client that developed a multifamily apartment complex that I think year one from, from the day that it was fully leased up or stabilized because they never really hit 100%. Um, and they, I mean, like multifamily apartments. So from the day that they were fully stabilized, uh, that first year, they netted right around a million dollars in cash flow. And they showed a $500,000 loss on their tax returns because of the accelerated depreciation. So not only did they make a million dollars in cash, they paid zero in taxes and had a half million dollar loss to carry into the next year 
or if that entity owned anything else, which I don't believe it did, they could have used that to offset other um, expenses that same year. So you think, or other taxes. So I mean, think about how powerful that is. A million dollars in cash when normally you're going to pay up to 37% tax on it. That's a huge, huge swing. Yeah, I, I tell I tell my buddies that are in the W two world um, that are doing mortgages that are making seven hundred fifty thousand a million dollars a year. You know, obviously that's great money, but the amount of taxes that they're paying in W two income, it's it's obscene. brutal. It is obscene, and the amount that we, you know, when I do a comparison and I'm like, guys, okay, so if you make say 300,000 in cash flow, but you take the depreciation and you take the principal pay down and you take your appreciation into account and you look at all the tax benefits, you're making the same amount of money, bro. Like it, it, it comes out the same, you know, but you're trading 80 hours of your week and, and I get to, I get to travel the world. So, you know, yeah. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know. What a flex. <laughs> well, yeah, I know that's kind of a dick move for me to say that, but, but seriously, you know, like, but it's true. Is it? Yeah. What's more important to you? Is it the, is it the title and is it the, um, you know, the W2 job or is it setting up freedom for yourself and your family? So you can, you know, I, I don't need the title anymore. I don't need the, you know, doesn't what matter. comes with all that stuff. No, it doesn't matter at all. You know, what matters is, you know, the strategies that get you free, that get you to be able to do the stuff that you want. Not everybody's going to want to travel the world. Not everybody wants to travel in an RV like me and, you know, uh, ride bikes and mountain bike and go to Honduras and do charity work. But what is your, what's your passion? You know, if you could go garden every day and you're happy gardening, then go do that. You know, I think, I think also it's like, you know, when people come to me and they're like, dude, I love my job. I don't, I don't ever want to quit my job. Awesome. Don't quit your job, but have a backup plan. What happens if your your parents get sick and you have to take care of them? What happens if something happens to your, your kid and all of a sudden you got to care for them? What happens if you get sick and you can't work anymore? Then what? You know, if you don't have a backup plan and you don't have a plan B for life and it's always just, I'm going to, I'm going to be a type A producer the rest of my life and just, you know, keep making crazy money that's not reality you know there there comes burnout there comes health you know trade-offs that come i got friends that you know they're still working in the mortgage business that now are getting like ulcers and you know colitis and things that are happening because their stress levels are so high and i get it i was i was there too you know yeah it it, it leads like good money leads to problems you know if your stress level is so high that you can't manage that stuff. So you got to have a backup plan. Yeah. And it's not even necessarily about completely replacing your job. It's just about right. making your job optional, right? Which yeah. makes it that much more freeing to, to work. Like, you know, I, I mean, just because I own a bunch of real estate doesn't mean I'm not going to go do real estate every day. Right. But yeah. I have the option, right? I mean, yeah. that's, that's the amazing thing. I can disappear for a week, two weeks and come back and everything's still fine. Train's still on yeah. the rails. It doesn't, it it doesn't matter. So Ryan, um, any last parting words of advice on, on investing in triple net properties? So, you know, I, I think the most resounding advice that I can ever give is just get started. You, yeah. You've got to take action and you've got to get started because you don't learn what you don't know. 
and you don't learn what what you don't physically do you know you you can you can learn from reading books and you can learn from other people that have done it and you know you can accelerate time and you can you know skip steps but ultimately to get into a place where you're financially free you've got to take action it requires taking action so get started and i would recommend um, it is is worth weight and gold to find a mentor or a broker that is can be your mentor that'll help you to make the right decisions and i guarantee if you're motivated you're willing to put in the work you're willing to put in the time you've got the resources there are there are people out there that will mentor you so that's wonderful Ryan, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your insights. Thank you to everybody that joined in live and was asking your questions. Uh, that, that obviously kept the conversation going. It's really fun uh, when we get to kind of open that side of it up. Um, if you're watching on YouTube, don't forget to like and subscribe so that you don't miss any more of these interviews that we're doing every Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. Central Standard. If you are listening on the podcast, please rate and review. That helps us know that uh, the content that we are creating is actually worth creating for you. And I will see you guys uh, next week.